0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of the No Script, No Problem podcast on Believe, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? Now, if you enjoy this show, please remember to subscribe and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe podcast, follow me on social media, Twitter and post news. It's at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram and threads it's at Steve M Berkowitz. I'm also on Mastodon spill, Facebook, Snapchat, and LinkedIn. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact believe at believe.com. All right, let's get started. I got a terrific guest coming up who is going to calm your nerves and give you some great advice to weather the storm during these stressful times. But before I chat with him, it's time for a little reality check. For the first time ever, linear TV viewership made up less than half of all TV usage in a measurement month. That is according to Nielsen's The Gauge Report for July. Broadcast TV accounted for only 20% of viewing and cable TV, 29.6%. Those are record lows and down 5.4% and 12.5% respectively versus the same period last year. YouTube and Netflix lead the way in terms of your streamers. Streaming viewing rose 2.9% from June to July 2023 and was up 25.3% over the past year, accounting for 38.7% of total TV usage. That's huge. Now, the thing that's kind of interesting is that the, one of the shows that has kind of really given Netflix, this bump, you know, a 4.2% increase in TV share over the course of June is suits, which was a cable show it was on USA network, right from 2011 to 2019. So it's pretty wild that this show, which picked up 4 billion minutes of viewing in one week, was on USA and virtually no one was talking about it during its nine season. I mean, a nine season run is incredible, but it wasn't like it was, you know, winning Emmy after Emmy. It wasn't a succession, you know, it wasn't a breaking bad. And now it's like, you look at comments people are making online and it's like suits. You'd think it's, you know, the greatest show ever. So it, it shows to me that It's not that people don't like broadcast programming. It's not that people don't like cable programming. They just prefer watching things on Netflix. They prefer watching things on YouTube. Now, the big irony here is that the average cost of subscribing ad free to a major streamer has jumped almost 25% in the last year. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. All right. So, after years, of cheap monthly fees, right? That we all loved when we first got Netflix or we first got Apple TV plus, right? Or we first got that wonderful bundle of Hulu and ESPN plus, right? And Disney plus that's all gone. Everybody wants to make money. Now all the streamers need to make money, but they are now testing our loyalty, testing customer loyalty, and they are all raising their prices and average assortment of the top US streaming services will be worth $87 a month come this fall, while an average cable package will be $83. All right. So just like we just talked about how streaming has surpassed broadcasting cable and viewers right now, the whole point of streaming, we didn't want to pay as much As cable now, it's all shifting back and we're suddenly paying more money for streaming than we are for cable. Disney is raising its prices for Disney Plus and Hulu. And that follows on the heels of Peacock, Netflix, Max, Paramount Plus, and Apple TV Plus all have raised their prices recently. It's gonna keep happening. They're gonna keep doing this until Wall Street is happy. The business model hasn't worked unless you're Netflix. This is also why you're seeing a huge increase in free ad-supported television, fast channels, right? Tubi is a perfect example. Tubi's doing well. Moving on to the wild world of reality television. Former Real Housewives of New York star, Bethany Frankel. She's causing quite a stir, talking to dozens of reality TV talent, trying to get them to unionize and get involved in potential litigation as well. She is encouraging reality TV stars to boycott along with SAG as asking for residuals on her shows. You know, she thinks reality TV stars should get residuals just like actors and actresses. We have talked about reality TV unions for as long as I can remember. But what she's doing is going a step further. Bethany is throwing accusations around at Bravo about a so called cover up, you know, during an incident that happened on set. And she's hired two very high powered lawyers. They're accusing NBC Universal, the parent company of Bravo, of exploitation and abuse, among other things. They've asked NBC's lawyers to preserve discovery as part of their investigation. It's getting kind of ugly. I can't speak to. Anything that has to do with the litigation or any of these things that they're accusing NBC or Bravo or the producers of doing. But I can say that unionization when it comes to reality TV is complicated. That is a very nuanced topic um, that I've talked to dozens of producers and friends about. And I think Bethany has some valid points when she talks about working hours and base pay rates. Those are valid points but there are so many layers that come into play when you're talking about reality tv you know she makes a point about you know i think she said you know she only made seven grand for her first season on the housewives well raquel as it turns out from vanderpump rules made 361 thousand dollars this past season you know vanderpump rules huge hit their biggest season ever nominated for an emmy but that's a ton of money i think when you're talking about reality TV, it's such a diverse genre. You can't pay a contestant on the bachelor or survivor the same as you do a housewife in a small ensemble cast, or you can't pay the same for a designer on HGTV as much as you do a family member on a TLC show. Or you do you pay the same for a guy who's on the boat on deadliest catch as you do somebody who's competing uh, for love on 90 day fiance. So the genre is so diverse that it's really hard to just throw numbers in there, you know, for a first season show. I think there's a lot of things that you need to take into consideration. But I do think rules and regulations are a good thing, and I think it's it's very valid to bring this up that we need to have that discussion. I don't know if a union is the right thing, but I certainly feel like a little bit more firm ground rules are a good thing i would be remiss though if i didn't mention that producers have no union as well in unscripted television so no insurance no overtime and no residuals and that often goes unmentioned it would be amazing to get residuals when the networks run reality shows all day long on e bravo mtv lifetime etc in fact the writers on ridiculousness are asking to join the wga i believe as they should because that show runs night and day on mtv and those folks are literally writing jokes as lead-ins to the clips you know other clip shows like america's funniest stone videos tosh.0 those writers are in the wga there's no reason why the folks on ridiculousness shouldn't be as well but as you kind of can tell it's a complicated issue All right, we'll stick with reality TV because why not? An article this past week in Deadline had a lot of folks worried and um, a lot of people in reality TV are freaking out. The headline to the article reads, doom and gloom in unscripted TV producers battle challenging conditions as mid-sized firms face layoffs. It appropriately addresses the quote, slowdown of green lights and cost cutting. End quote within the platforms and networks and how it has led to a slew of layoffs and a dearth of work in unscripted TV. The article references this drought hitting reputable companies like a Murray, Half Yard, Hot Snakes, High Noon, and Propagate, all very good companies. One unscripted producer told Deadline, quote, it's the toughest time to be in unscripted that I can remember. End quote. Another said it was a, quote, brutal moment. I would agree. I would agree with both those producers. Uh, We all remain hopeful that things will rebound. I'm not going to hold my breath, but I will continue to tread water. Keep my head above that water. Nobody should feel alone, though. That is for sure. If you're struggling out there, you're worried, hang in there, man. And that is why I got Tim Duffy coming up in a minute. Tim Duffy is my guest. Tim Duffy is an extremely talented producer, creative executive. He's an entrepreneur. He is a founder, and he is a seasoned teacher of meditation and mindfulness, and that is why I wanted him to come on the podcast, right? So along with being co-founder of Yum Crunch and Ugly Brother Studios with his brother Mike Tim is a peak performance and productivity specialist who combines 15 years of teaching meditation with 20 years in the C suite to help executives, employees, and organizations thrive. Now, as you'll hear, his style modernizes the ancient teachings of mindfulness and adapts them for modern professionals. So, with all the chaos going on in both the entertainment industry and in the world at large, I think he's the perfect guest. So sit back, find a quiet place, relax. Tim's got some words of wisdom for you. Enjoy. Well, welcome back to the podcast, my friend, Mr. Tim Duffy. Uh, A lot has changed since the last time we talked. We talked last time about mindfulness, but you are now big into this world of mindfulness and meditation. You're now, I would call you a guru in this space and this amidst your your role on World Chef and being you know being a founder being a co-CEO with your brother in that space in this crazy world that we're in right now with media and um entertainment and I've talked about that on the podcast before how you know everybody's kind of stressed out I thought it was perfect for you to talk about kind of the way you deal with the stresses of this world with mindfulness and meditation so Talk to me a little bit about when when the, the craziness comes into your world, whether it's as a dad or as an executive. How do you use mindfulness? How do you use meditation to handle all the insanity that comes into the world?
1: First of all, thank you for calling me a guru, um, <laughs> which means teacher, right? Which is true. I am a meditation teacher, but in our Western culture, it also means douchebag. So do not call me a guru.
0: (laughs) Let me rephrase. You are not a guru. What's a better word? What's a better word?
1: I'm, um, I am a mindfulness teacher. I've been teaching mindfulness for the past 15 years.
0: Um, Okay. I, I re I re I will take back guru and I, I will just say mindfulness teacher instructor. Yes. Okay.
1: Do the woo woo of the mindfulness community is so funny to me. Right. Because like the thing about mindfulness is, it's um, it's a practice that we can learn, and it doesn't really take any special skills. Um, every single human being on Earth has the ability to be mindful, and the the my particular set of circumstances brought me to mindfulness because of my old friend's anxiety and depression. Um, and when I was uh, growing up, um, I had this kind of pervasive sense that I was uh, not well. I had a fear of death, a constant fear of death when I was growing up. A general kind of like unsatisfactoriness that was like the foundation of my experience and the world outside of my internal world didn't quite know about it, right? I wasn't like talking about it because I was, you know, a young man with the the bravado of youth and I was seemingly doing pretty well in school and, um, and in my work life. When I went to college my freshman year, I was a psychology major. I wanted to work uh, with kids. And I took this class called New Directions in Psychotherapy from this old hippie dude named Norman Bradford. He had, he was like a, he, was, he looked like a guru. He had flowing white hair a long flowing like ZZ top beard. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And he was just a hippie who was obsessed with creating different avenues towards wellness that weren't um, solely dependent on the methods of Western psychology and science, right? Which is the, of course the language of the West is material science. So he kind of, he started this class called New Directions in Psychotherapy, and every single week, all we did was a new kind of meditation. And one week, we'd be climbing up a tree outside, and just sitting in a tree and listening to the wind. And another week, we would be listening to poetry. And another week, we would be doing African drumming, you know, so... This was the privileged life of, uh, you know, a private college in Baltimore called Goucher, where I discovered these traditions and I never looked back. I've meditated every single day since then. I've accrued well over 10,000 hours of meditation time uh, in my life. I sit every single morning for about an hour in the morning. Meditation for me and mindfulness have become really kind of the backdrop against which absolutely everything that I experience is experienced. So that kind of dual path, right, of like growing up in the world, getting jobs and careers, and also simultaneously having this uh, meditation practice in my life, it was the the job and the career and the life and the death and the sickness, all of that was grist for the mill for the meditation practice, right? We don't recede back into a cave and become a monk for 10 years, although that exists. Most of us actually have to pay the bills, right? And as uh, a great teacher guru named Ram Dass that he said, um, Remember your true nature, which is awareness itself, and your social security number. And so it's the pairing of these, these two things where mindfulness can really help us thrive uh, amidst whatever is happening. And I, And there's a lot happening in our lives right now, Steve, you know, not just in a post-pandemic world of um, how do we we're continuing to figure out how do we exist together? How do we re-socialize? We're pretty far on the other side of this, yet a lot of folks are still trying to figure out, you know, how do I get out of the loneliness cycle? How do I re-socialize?
0: I think that's a great point. The re-socialization, at least uh, for me, you know, being on set, being around friends was something that you took for granted in 2019, right up until... Pandemic, and then we all uh, became Zoomers. You, in in one of your posts that I saw, you you were kind of saying that when you were, I think your point was that meditation and mindfulness is for everybody. What do you feel like uh, if if you're a beginner? What is kind of that that first problem or that that first that issue that people have with meditation or mindfulness?
1: I think we step back even further and we go, well, why do we need meditation and mindfulness? right? To uh, develop an adversarial relationship with meditation and mindfulness is just a continuation of the reason why we come to meditation and mindfulness, right? Which is because we suffer. Um, The foundation of mindfulness, which of course is pulled from Buddhism, it's kind of the secular, if you will, uh, set of practices that were born out of a Buddhist tradition, of course, which was preceded by Hindu tradition. And and the Buddha, he said, we suffer because we are attached. And it begs the question, well, what are we attached to? And the answer to that is we're attached to permanence. We believe that things are going to stick around. They're gonna stay that our our lives are going to stay the same when things are going really well. We want things to change when things aren't going well, but when things are going really well, we don't want things to change. So we suffer. For things to um, change when things aren't going well, that means that when things are going well, they also have to change. This is the nature of our human life. We are born into this body and we get sick and we age and we die eventually. This is the starting point for why we suffer. We rage uh, against the machine of our own human body and our attachment to being young or being pretty or being thin, right, is creating harm in our lives being human is a sexually transmitted disease that always ends in death Um, what did the buddhist doctor write on the death certificate as the cause of death birth that makes sense (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we, we somehow think that we're going to evade this reality. Everything changes. Impermanence is a fundamental law of being human. And this is why we ask the question how can I decrease my suffering? What is it that can come into my that I can bring into my life and um, provide myself with some sense of relief? Um, And to begin the process of of relief is to acknowledge the fundamental truth of our existence, that it changes, that everything is impermanent. And I think this is very much on display in the entertainment world for us right now. The old ways of living, of the consistency of getting a job, the consistency of a paycheck, right? The consistency of the big... Uh, media machine, knowing how to monetize itself and thriving, you know, and yet simultaneously continually pissing all over the people and the companies that are feeding the machine of media, right? We're in, two of our guilds are in strike mode right now, uh, negotiating with this incredibly ill-defined Impermanent force called big media, who in and of itself, big media doesn't know how to make a solvent business. How are we negotiating with a business that doesn't know how to monetize itself? Right? Uh, It's essential that we stand up and present ourselves back to big media and say, we deserve to be paid, we deserve to be treated in equitable ways, but at the same time, how are we negotiating with a machine that doesn't know how to run itself? So at the core of the mindfulness teaching is a is a concept um, that was derived from um, the US government, the Army College, I believe, created a term called VUCA at the end of the Cold War to kind of define. You know, w- what is this thing that we're feeling in a term as a, as a global community? Uh, and VUCA was developed, um, and it stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, right? So volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Doesn't that sound familiar? In a word, impermanent in two words, don't know. We don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know what our future holds, right? We hold on to the past and we bring it into the present as concepts in our minds. And we we carry this kind of, this weight as we age. And this weight is like a suit of armor, right? Uh, the suit of armor somehow going to protect us because don't we know so much? I know who I am. I know what my skills are. I know what what my future holds because of all these other things that I've done in my past. No, you don't. It could all end like that. And in fact, it does over and over and over again. We do not know what the future holds. The past is helpful in some regard Uh, in the present, but it cannot predict the future. And in fact, both the past and the future can only be experienced in the present moment. The past is a concept in the mind. The future is a concept in the mind. And both exist only in the present moment. So what are we to do in this mind that is constantly futuring itself and freaking out. And sometimes we call this anxiety. And what do we do with the present moment mind that is also regretting things from the past and bringing statements about the solidity of what was into the present moment, which is not solid at all at least from a mental perspective, which is the only perspective we have. So what are we to do? One of the core practices in mindfulness uh, is derived from, again, the Buddha's teachings. In in, in uh, uh, mindfulness communities, there's what's called the three jewels. The Buddha, which is like the teacher, the idealized kind of like being, so to speak, that knows how to relate to life from the perspective of wide open space, right? That still human, but also um, resting in awareness from a place of non reactivity. The teachings themselves, Dharma, right, um, is the second jewel, which is the kind of wisdom that we as human beings, the great wisdom traditions of the world, be them, you know, the Christian desert fathers, of the second and third century, the uh, Kabbalah uh, teachings uh, from Judaism, Sufi teachings from Islam, right? Uh, Native American teachings um, about the oneness of humanity and the interconnectedness of us as animals with animals and the earth around us. These are the great wisdom t- teachings of humanity, and they are not particular to any religion. So we have the kind of idealized human over here as the first jewel. And then we've got the second jewel, which is the great wisdom traditions of the world. And then the third jewel is what you're building. And it's called Sangha, which means community. Every time you put out a podcast, you invite your world of people in to the shared experience of being together. And when they bring that shared experience in, they're sharing the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, as my teacher Jack Cornfield says, together. Every person that listens to your podcast right now has a set of impermanent characteristics by definition that are rising up in their lives. They've got the transition of life. They've got a baby being born or um, a parent or a family member dying. They've just gotten a new job or a raise or they just got fired and they no longer have income. All right? Um, they're digesting the food from lunch that will give them the energy to write the emails this afternoon, right? This is all just process. We are interconnected with the world around us. And Sangha is representative of community. And uh, Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General, he writes about the epidemic of loneliness. If I don't think we should all jump into becoming meditators um, and following a particular religion or um, or or a particular way of viewing the world. First, I think the first thing we should do is find a friend and have a conversation. And then maybe find another friend and have another conversation. I think to recognize the suffering that exists in our world and to begin to alleviate that suffering we should start by actually connecting with other human beings and saying yes I'm here for you and by the way also I need help can we talk can we communicate
0: i can relate to everything you're saying and i'm i'm curious do you do you kind of utilize your meditation your mindfulness like in the morning do you do it right away or how does it kind of on a practical level come into play for you personally how have you found it to be effective in your life
1: there are two methods that i utilize in my life that are available to all of us Uh, one is called formal meditation we develop a ritual of sitting down in a particular way um, under particular circumstances that create a bit of a ritual that signified to the body and to the mind, now is the time when I'm going to do this. Like sitting down for a meal, some people say grace, some people hold hands, some people take a big deep breath, some people just dive right in and eat a meal together. It's about ritual to kind of establish that this is the safe container for this particular experience. That's what formal meditation is. And so I'll sit um, formally, every single morning, but then periodically on an as needed basis, I'll also sit and meditate. And I begin by saying, okay, now is the time when I'm going to meditate. The second style of um, practice, which is called informal practice or um, in your life meditation. And this is like micro dosing, right? Throughout the day. And all you're doing with informal meditation is you know, in, in uh, modern neuroscience tells us that we have a top-down model of the world. What does that mean? It means that the mind is how we experience our lives, that, and this is not a um, uh, an over-exaggeration um, or um, some kind of uh, spiritual statement, actually. Modern neuroscience tells us that um, we actually are only capable of processing our experience through the mind, right? So um, we're not directly experiencing anything. Our mind is interpreting data as it comes through each of the five sense doors, telling a story about that data and asking the question, does it match up with previous information? If it does not match up with previous information, three things can happen. One, it just gets bored and moves on because it's nothing special is happening. Two, it feels some sort of threat and it freaks out and turns into anxiety or depression. And three, it gets invigorated because of the novelty of whatever this new story is coming in and it says, need more, need more, need more, right? These are the three possibilities that we experience all day long, every day as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, right? And so mindfulness allows us to kind of experience drop into a set of awareness to a place of awareness of just about does this feel pleasant does this feel unpleasant or am i neutral right and we can ask that question all day long am i feeling pleasant am i feeling unpleasant or am i feeling neutral and it can be that simple you can just drop that question into the zoom that you're having uh while you're pitching a show is this pleasant is this unpleasant or is it neutral? You can drop it into um, the tasting of an orange. You can drop it into the experience of sitting with your partner and having a conversation about their work day. You can drop it into the experience of laying down at night to go to bed. All day long, these three filters, so to speak, of mind are categorizing our experience. And when we become mindful of, Just this simple method pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. um, We loosen the grip of of, uh, reactivity so that when something is unpleasant, for instance, someone cutting us off in traffic, we're not freaking out, honking on the horn, and screaming at them and creating harm in the world. We just have that little gap, a tiny little gap where we go, unpleasant welcome back unpleasant, you know, or that person on social media, that Facebook person on social media that always spouts crazy political bullshit. And you're like typing up your response and you're like citing reference points from, you know, all of your, you know, your bubble of information. Yes.
0: Uh, You've got the article ready to post right in the, into the comment. Yes. I've been there.
1: I've been there too. I went on Facebook for like eight years because of this. Um, and I came back to Facebook from the perspective of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, right? When I read someone's post that's spouting some idiot bullshit that I view as idiot bullshit, and I'm typing up my response, I know that I've been caught, I've been hooked into reactivity. And what am I doing on Facebook if I feed the war, Right? How are we contributing to the benefit of humankind when we feed the war? There's a place for uh, thoughtful opposition, right? But we can't get into the place of action, of speaking and acting to the benefit of ourselves and other human beings unless we have a firm foundation of, I know what's going on in my internal world. What is going on in my internal world? I'm activated. I am pissed off. I am typing this and my job is to make that person look like an idiot in front of all their friends. That never ever ever works. There's a beautiful book called How Minds Change from an author named David McCraney who did uh, who explored the massive transition in um, California's view, um, both politically and culturally about gay marriage in 2008, 70% of the population was opposed to gay marriage in 2018, 70% of the population was for gay marriage. What happened in 10 years time for that shift? David McCraney talks about this and at the core of it, spoiler alert is, uh, a method of, um, Uh, investigation that political uh, activists use called deep canvassing and at the core of deep canvassing is deep listening right so when we come at a person with whom we disagree from the perspective of war they will come at us with the perspective of war but when we come at a person with whom we disagree from the perspective of I care about you and your experience in your life matter. And I want to listen to you. And that doesn't mean that I have to agree with you, but it does mean that I will respect you and listen to you. That's where real change starts to happen. And that is the change that occurred in 10 years time with regard to gay marriage in California. Throughout our experience as human beings, there's, that's part of the Dharma, right? That's human wisdom not coming from religion, not coming from tech, but just coming from one individual to another individual and saying, I care about you. I don't wanna perpetuate the war. I genuinely wanna connect with you. I wanna build community. Our Sangha is all beings on earth. And if we exclude one, we might as well exclude all of us. And it's from this perspective that we can actually take action and advance forward as a species to the benefit of ourselves and others. That's what mindfulness allows us to do. And there's tons of practices that we can explore and methods that we can explore. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: So let let's break it down. You talk about kind of like the, the little moments of where you can bring thoughtfulness into your day and you use the example of somebody cuts you off or somebody you know on social media but let's talk about you're on set and you have a disagreement with whether it's a colleague or a uh, let's say talent how do you how would you or how, how have you kind of had that ability to go pleasant unpleasant right and use some mindfulness to get yourself into a better place when you're having a disagreement or a bad moment on set?
1: But one method that we can use is to um, acknowledge, I love this maxim. Yeah. If you can name it, you can work with it, right? And absolutely everything in our internal world is workable, right? The, part of the foundation of what I uh, help other peoples um, discover about themselves is, our internal world is, is like a dictator unless we recognize that the dictator doesn't need to lead the way, right? The the dictator is just an aspect of being human. It's called mind and we all have this mind. And uh, it's a bunch of thoughts that proliferate in certain situations paired with physical experience in the body. And when we push the dictator in a particular direction, the dictator fights back. So, but when we gently name the internal experience, and we call it anger, for instance, and we just gently name it, and we develop an attitude. Anger is unpleasant in the body, although it can be pleasant, seemingly pleasant for some people, right? And there's no denying that either, right? Some of us do feel that sense of anger, but on the other side of anger, when there's action and, uh, and it harms other people and ourselves, we have regret. So we drop into the space of saying anger is present, quickly, just quickly, right? Uh, Anger, I name it, anger is present. Take a big deep breath. (sighs) Thank you, host of game show or actor. I hear what you're saying. And we decide within ourselves in that moment that we are not the constricted accumulation of congealed um, energy that is, that needs to be right. Um, All that congealed constricted energy um, is present in our system as anger. And we watch it from the perspective of awareness, from the witness. We say, welcome back anger, gently in our mind as an attitude. Welcome back anger, I know you, I've worked with you before. You will continue to be present on and off for the rest of my life. So let's be friendly here. And you're welcome to come and go as you please, Anger. Right? I'm not gonna fight you, Anger. But what I will do is I will receive you in the wide open space of awareness. And I will know your characteristics because when we feel anger in our body, it's never about the other person. It's never about the external situation anger is always us meeting ourselves in our internal experience. Always. There's never, ever, ever a situation where anger is caused by someone else. It's caused by the feeling we have when we encounter that seemingly external force. It's our relationship to that external force that creates harm in our lives. So and it's our relationship really ultimately to the only force that forces that there are in our experiences which are internal the only thing we can ever experience in our awareness is the internal so we say welcome back anger is present take a big ass deep breath recognize anger's presence in our lives get better at recognizing when anger is present and from that place of recognition and wide open spacious awareness we go <sighs> Now I will respond, right? And if we can respond from the place of helpfulness, then great. If we can respond from the place of neutrality and not causing harm, great. If we respond from the place of harmfulness, that's okay too, because it gives us yet another opportunity to recognize anger's presence in our life and to relate to it in a, in a more constructive, helpful way. We're not receding into the cave and becoming a monk. We're living our lives and we're growing with the experiences of our lives so that we can act and speak to the benefit of self and other. This is an idealized state. So that's what we're talking about.
0: Another scenario you and I both know well, you put your heart and soul into developing a project. A lot of people are trusting you. You have talent. You've told them that we're, you know, we're pushing this forward, and they're trusting you. Your partners trust you. You've spent a lot of time on this, and nobody wants it. Yeah. Uh, how do how do you use your skills? to kind of not feel empty inside, to not feel like, I let me not say empty, but to not feel like all that time, energy, in a lot of cases, as a freelancer, money, uh, that it was all a waste.
1: Mm. Thank you for that question. It's a great and important question for those of us that generate, um, from our internal experiences, ideas and concepts that we believe the world should love. My father said to me long ago, when I first moved to Los Angeles, he said, if you have just one good idea, you ain't worth shit. (laughs) Right? I love that. And what it does is it just creates a sense of humor around it, okay? Like, it's just one idea, you know? That being said, when we spend money and time and energy and relationships trying to get someone to finance that idea, the sting persists. So how do we relate to that sting? One way to relate to the sting is to recognize VUCA, the nebulosity of why things don't work, right? There is a network of complexity within the entertainment industry right now. And as, as it's been the case, you know, forever, but it's a, particularly apparent in today's world. We referenced it earlier as VUCA, but what is nebulosity? Why did someone pass on that idea? Why didn't it work? It's in some ways it's a fool's errand, right? So we acknowledge the nebulosity of why a thing didn't work as a, as a an aspect of, of the experience of creating something and putting it out into the world and then the world saying no to it. Um, and we try to hold it a little less tight, right? We try to release the fist, the grip so to speak around what we believe to be a perfect idea that someone should buy and, t- and give us money for, right? And we reset our relationship to the idea and to the process of pitching from the firm foundation of, I don't know, right? We reset there, we go, I don't know, it's nebulous. I, I'm there. I could try to pursue all the different patterns and paths and understand all the different forces of the hundreds and thousands of people that participate in the saying no process. Um, or I could just say nebulous, don't know. And then I come back to the idea. And from the place of a, a calmer, less attached position to the idea, we can then begin to refine the idea. We can start having conversations with other folks about the idea. It might be time to just drop the idea and come up with something completely different. But often, isn't it really that there's something very interesting that many people responded to when you pitched the idea. But, and that thing was what everybody kept talking about. And it was maybe a particular character that you wrote about or a particular um, style of hero's journey in the story that, you know, began with the ending first or whatever. Um, And we say, all right, what was the world telling me about this process that, Actually was kind of consistent across some of these communications that I had, that I can actually lift up that aspect of the thing that I created and perhaps reform it and add new fresh elements and perspectives into it. In Silicon Valley, this is called the pivot. Um, you know, I've gone through multiple stages of investment for my businesses. I've launched three startups in my time. Silicon Valley, especially in uh, pre-seed investment, they're not investing as much in the idea as they are investing in the individual, right? They're seeing people, founders of businesses, as folks that can adapt, and here's the great word, overused but still relevant, pivot, right? What have we learned from the path we've taken to today and how do we apply those learnings? To the benefit of our, ourselves and others with regard to this particular idea moving forward. We cannot adapt and pivot if we are stuck in the place of no one gets me or that idea was awesome and I should keep pitching that exact idea as the, the same way I pitched it that everybody passed on 100 times. Our life is a process, ideas are conceptual. Just like your belief that Steve is a person who is permanent and independent, when in fact, really all you are is a process that's evolving over time because of impermanence. Concepts we bring out into the world and we try to sell are impermanent by their very nature. Children grow up because of impermanence. We don't want babies to stay babies. For babies to stay babies, we'd just be in a sea of babies who can't figure shit out. and they have, There's poop everywhere all over the world.
0: Yeah, you know? I don't think anybody wants that.
1: Our ideas are like babies. We want them to grow up and to evolve. We don't want to stop them dead in their tracks. So we hold our ideas the way we hold a newborn baby. We feed it and we love it. And at a certain point, You got to let the baby go, but also at a certain point when the baby becomes a 14 or a 15 year old, you got to figure out what the baby's telling you, right? And what the world is telling you about your 14 year old and how do we support the 14 year old to proliferate forward in the process of itself. It's the same thing with ideas.
0: I think that's a great analogy because you can only take care of so many kids.
1: Dude, you got to let some of those kids go. Some of your kids are assholes. Right? Yeah.
0: You can't take care of all of them. You start to, you know, you get to the the Elon Musk stage. I mean, you're not the richest guy in the world. You got like 10 kids. You can only take care of so many. So, Yeah, you can't that,
1: rename all your kids X.
0: Exactly. So, uh, I think that's a great analogy as a, each each concept is is a is a little baby and then it grows up and you got to let some of them go at some point. I think that's that's a great analogy. This is the
1: law of impermanence and it's so helpful in every aspect of our lives.
0: Yeah. How do you, what What advice would you give for somebody who's kind of nervously waiting to figure out where what their role is in this kind of changing media ecosystem? And it's kind of a vague question, but, um, you know, you and I both know if you're under 30, you're watching TikTok and YouTube and Netflix and pretty much that's it. And if you are somebody who gets their work in the more legacy or traditional media, the cable networks or the broadcast. Well, you know, life's going to be changing. And I think that's a big part of the problem with, you know, what's happening right now is people are watching content in a different way. We're still making content in a certain way. Not as many people are going to movies with the exception of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Um, So I think we're kind of stuck in this mode of, okay, what do I do now? What do I do now? And you're right. Everything you just said is right. How do you pivot? What kind of advice would you give to somebody who's in that kind of anxious mode of, okay, well, where do I fit in?
1: Wow, what a beautiful question. I give this advice to people all day long. So as you know, Steve, I've pivoted. I've been teaching meditation for 15 years to my friends throughout the entertainment community. And about a year and a half ago, um, the demand got so great. And I was saying no to far too many people that I just decided that I needed to open up my, my own life to support other people. So I, I work with executives and producers and, um, and businesses to answer this question of how do we move forward in success in the face of VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. So the first thing we do is we acknowledge VUCA. We don't know what is to come. Um, We step back into awareness and we recognize Let's talk about an individual, right? So we'll call this individual Bob. So, Bob is a showrunner who's been extremely successful for 15 years. He's worked on many shows. Um, He's not had a job for a year and a half. Bob is an expert in storytelling, but Bob is relying on external forces to validate his expertise. He's saying, I'm going to wait for those forces to signal back to me that I'm okay. And that my belief in myself as being essential to the success of those external forces, big media, production companies, television companies, that I am essential to their success. And they will come around to see me as a key element that will help them Regain their success in their own worlds. Bob needs to recognize that VUCA is actually happening for them as well. And so he needs to step back and say, what is it that I'm hanging on to? What we often are hanging on to is a sense of fixed identity. We believe ourselves to be a certain thing. I am a showrunner. I am X. I am Y. I am a husband. I am a father. I am smart. I am am whatever it is that I've perpetuated throughout my life and felt as if I could rest in that identity. But what is that identity and where is that identity? Upon further review, we begin to understand that that identity is in our minds. It lives in the abstractions of mind. It lives in the non-tangible abstractions of awareness, its thoughts, It's physical feelings and awareness. It's tension, it's contraction. But yet on my LinkedIn page, it says all these things, right? Well, my LinkedIn page should be all you need to know about why you should hire me and why you should use me to solve your problems, big media. When we look a little deeper at our LinkedIn page and we remove our connection and our attachment to the identity of our LinkedIn page, We can start to see actually a pattern. What is that pattern when we remove our attachment to us being a particular way? The pattern is actual skills that are useful and viable in the world. Storytelling, for instance, for Bob, is not what's going away. Stories will forever be what makes us human. There will always be demand for stories, and arguably there is more of a demand than ever for stories. It's just that we are attached to the old delivery systems. So when I step back in my LinkedIn identity and I go, okay, maybe that my stories and my belief that my stories are valuable to Netflix or Amazon or to, you know, CBS or whatever, maybe I step back from that and I go, well, what is living underneath that? I'm a fucking PhD in storytelling, right? And then I start thinking, well, what else is in my resume? Well, I've always wanted to work with kids. Or I've always wanted to work in the wellness industry. Or I've always wanted to work in, I'm obsessed with AI. What is going on in the AI world, right? A growth industry, by the way. And then we start to ask the question, well, I have this kind of life earned PhD in storytelling. What if I just disentangled it from the delivery systems with which I've grown attached, to which I've grown attached. And I asked the question, are there other delivery systems that will allow me to use these skills in ways that people and businesses will benefit? And the answer is hell yes, there are. In fact, there's more opportunity than ever for people like us who've been telling stories our whole lives. The only obstacle towards our ability to do so is our attachment to our own identity, our ego. We have to let go, drop back into awareness and reposition ourselves from the perspective of, ah, I actually have choice. And in fact, it's infinite. But I do not have choice if I believe myself to be this label in this world and I can only exist in the, as this label in this particular world, drop the labels, drop the worlds, reassess, and from the place of wide open space, reemerge into the world and take action. Have conversations with folks, put the word out there that you're an expert storyteller to 50 brands that you're interested in working with, all of whom in today's world are likely to need some form of expert storytelling in order for their brands to evolve to meet the needs of their clients and their customers. So that is what, that's the advice that I give. And it's the advice I took myself, man. You know, I haven't launched three startups because, because I felt so comfortable that television was going to give me everything that I needed. Um, I disentangled myself from the belief that television was the only way. And I've reconfigured my own relationship to the skills that I've developed over time and redeployed them back out into the world by communicating with my sangha, with my community, which is much larger than it ever was. And why? Because I actually engaged and I asked questions and I said, hello, and hey, I need help. Or hey, can I help you?
0: Dude, that's awesome. I think that's Great advice. I think that is uh, advice that a lot of people, myself included, could use. All right, before I let you go, I have to ask you how you're feeling about your Philadelphia Eagles coming up this season. I mean, look, so close last year. Is this a Super Bowl year for the Eagles?
1: Around the birth of my second child, I had to let go of the identity as an Eagles fan. So, like, so right, and I have three kids now, a three and a half year old. Talk about letting go, dude. So every time I engage with somebody that talks about sports, I go, sports, yay! And I don't really know what's going on in the sports world. I frankly, I barely watched any Eagles games last year. Uh, Super Bowl was great. By the way, Philadelphia had a great year last year. Super Bowl World Series, MLS championship. I, that's
0: true. I forgot to ask. Yeah, I forgot to ask about the Phillies. Yeah. The only yeah. reason I know any of that
1: is because everyone that I used to um, connect with about sports from Philly uh, was talking about it on social media, my sangha, right? My community. Yes. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to pay attention when folks when they got to the, to the championship games. But prior to that, frankly, I was like, you know, I got to change a diaper. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know what's going to happen this year, but I can't wait. To connect with um, with more people and maybe watch more games and um, but I'm not gonna stay attached to it and the outcome really doesn't matter to me that much. It's really just about being able to see the joy in other people's faces. I was at um, Disneyland the week after the Eagles lost the Super Bowl um, last year, right? With my kids, my kids were on a ride and we, we were with a bunch of other people. They went over to um, California Adventure and I hadn't bought the two pass ticket or whatever. So I'm like, you guys go over there, I'm gonna hang back at Disneyland and I'm just gonna get quiet. So I quite literally, this is like the week after the Eagles lost the Super bowl And uh, I quite literally picked a bench at the entryway to the park and I put my earbuds in and I sat down and I started to meditate, right? Cause I knew they would be gone for about an hour. So I'm sitting there, the weirdo sitting on the bench uh, with a blank look on his face, just experiencing the presence of what was happening in front of me. And what started to happen in front of me was that bastard Patrick Mahomes and a parade of celebration.
0: Oh wow, oh wow.
1: That I had no idea was about to happen down Main Street Disney starts happening in front of my face while I'm meditating wow i have an eagle's hat on <laughs> right and you know what i and, and instead of you know and i say bastard like obviously but like what i witnessed was joy everywhere around me right a sea of the colors of the opposition <laughs> so to speak and the man that right it was patrick Mahomes. i'm talking about it yeah so and the man that won the game Literally walking directly in front of me as I'm meditating. And I didn't feel hate and I didn't feel angst and I didn't feel anxiety. I felt joy because I was witnessing the joy of all these other human beings. I think that's the way we should live in the sports world. You know, and I think that's the way we should live in our lives. If we can feel joy for others, then we can actually feel joy for ourselves because everything is an internal experience. So when we feel joy for ourselves or for others, what are we actually doing? we're encountering ourselves in a joyful state, right? And waking up to that reality is a game changer. And I think mindfulness and meditation can help folks in that regard.
0: I concur. All right, last thing. Tell me a little bit about Yum Crunch, your company that you have uh, with your brother, Mike.
1: So Yum Crunch is a, you know, we've won uh, some Emmys for the food content that we've made over the years, nominated for nine Emmys and five James Beard Awards. We won two uh emmys um a couple of years back um again this is about the pivot right this is what's available to us we looked at our skills and we we're like we have all these chef relationships we are, have the ability to tell extraordinary food stories one of the frustrations that we experienced with our food shows was big media wasn't giving our viewers the opportunity to eat what they see so we created yum crunch to solve that problem so we work with some of the world's best chefs and influencers to create content that you can taste. You can go to yumcrunch.com. You can find follow us on all of our socials at yum, yum Crunch, yumcrunch y u m c r u n c h and uh, experience the stories that we tell and have the opportunity to to buy what you see. My consultancy is timduffymeditation.com. I specialize in. Uh, science and mindfulness-based peak performance for executives and producers and companies uh, to reapproach their lives from a firm foundation of um, being awake to the assets that they have available to themselves, acknowledging the difficulties but not wallowing in the difficulties, right? How do we advance forward in our lives if we're stuck in the old habits of mind. We can actually thrive when we let go of the old habits of mind and we recognize the true potential of what we all bring to this earth and to one another. So that's what I'm setting out to do with
0: TimDuffyMeditation.com. Tim, thank you for doing the podcast one more time. I appreciate it, brother.
1: Thank you so much. Much love to you. Have a beautiful day.
0: Before I go, I'll recommend a couple documentaries for you. If you love sports, give Johnny Football a watch. That's the Johnny Manziel documentary on Netflix. Remember, Big Johnny, Texas A&M, huge superstar, won the Heisman, then a lot of problems when he got to the NFL. Very fun, very entertaining. And another one to check out, The YouTube Effect. It is a comprehensive deep dive doc by Alex Winter. Really shows you how powerful YouTube is and will continue to be. All right, that is going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. For everybody listening, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, and tune in. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and post news at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram. And threads at Steve M. Berkowitz. I'm also on Mastodon Spill, Facebook, Snapchat, and LinkedIn. Yes, seriously. TikTok. I'm coming for you. You can also email me any questions you have, the no script no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact bleve at bleve.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem.